In pastorate's past, I've had a practice of semi-regularly having a question and answer evening, and people in those congregations have submitted their Bible and theology questions ahead of time by phone or in person or by email, and I have sought to look for Bible answers to their questions. So tonight, since I'm new as your pastor, I've brought back some questions from other congregations to prime the pump, but I would love to have questions from you going forward as to what you're wondering about that God's Word addresses. The first question tonight is, what is the best approach to witnessing Christ to Roman Catholic family and friends? This is not the only approach, but the most favorite approach that I've had is to take a piece of paper and to draw three circles. The first circle with a W in it, the middle circle with a C plus W in it, and the third circle, a letter C in it. The three circles would stand for W for works, people trying to get right with God by their own good works. The middle circle, C plus W, people who try to get right with God by their own good works plus by what Jesus has done. And the third circle, the C circle, those who understand they are only made right with God through Christ and his finished work. When I ask a Roman Catholic which circle they find themselves in, often they say, I've never thought about it. And then I smile and say, well, I know, I understand, but I have some time. I would just like to wait to let you consider what circle you'd be in. And then I pause with a smile. I wait. And nine times out of ten, the Roman Catholic friend will say C plus W. They see themselves as being in the C plus W circle because that's basically what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Christ plus good works. Uh, the W circle, of course, is not uh, the circle to be in for anyone because Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. So that's the wrong circle to be in. Yet every world religion, apart from biblical Christianity, is in that circle. The middle circle, Christ plus good works, there's a big problem with that because tell Telestai that we spoke about on Good Friday, Jesus' last words from the cross uh, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. So if it's finished, why would you add to it? How could you add to it? And how much would you add to it? How would you know when you've added enough? And that's the bondage, frankly, of the Roman Catholic Church is they never know if they've done enough. And so you ask a precious Roman Catholic friend, family member, uh, are you going to heaven? They will say, I hope so because they're in the C plus W circle, and they don't really know when they've added enough good works to Christ to be sure of heaven. And that's why the Roman Catholic Church is purgatory, to give you a second chance as a Catholic. The Christ alone circle, of course, is what the Scriptures teach. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. And so I use the three circles, and I try to show the precious Roman Catholic person that this, the W circle is definitely out. The C plus W circle is also not scriptural, but the C alone circle is what the scriptures say is the way for them to be right with God. I remember sharing that with a visiting family to the last church I pastored. There was a father, a mother, and three children. They had come to the church because the teenage 
child was in our youth group, and she was so excited and fired up about the church that she brought her parents and her other two siblings to meet with me to find out about the church. In the course of talking about the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and our church, we got into all of this, and I laid out the three circles, and I said to them with love and a smile and prayer, which circle would you find yourself in? And the teenage daughter points to the C circle and says, that's where I am. And then she shoved the paper in front of her father. And what circle are you in, Dad? To her mother, what circle are you in, Mother? And to her brother and sister, what circles are you in? And all five trusted the Lord to be their Savior that day. To God be the glory. Second question tonight. Do I have any suggestions for effective witnessing the Lord Jesus in workplace situations? How many of you are still working? Majority, yeah, majority if they were still working. So how do you share Christ in your workplaces? Well, the first thing you do is you pray. You commit every day of work to the Lord in prayer. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing to discharge your employment duties apart from Christ. Nothing that will have eternal impact. And you will never share Christ in your workplace except you pray that it will have eternal impact. There's also a sense when you share Christ, you should have an urgency uh, that it could be the last opportunity you get to share Christ. If you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, how do we share Christ in our workplace? 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 to 10. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, as the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. At the acceptable time, there's an urgency. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live as as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. How do we best share Christ in our workplaces? With urgency, not seeking to offend, but knowing that the gospel will offend, but we as the gospel spokesperson ought not to consciously offend. As a servant, we're to share the gospel as a servant. Jesus said, the greatest of these is servant to all. Having a loving testimony, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34. Being spirit-filled in the workplace. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which is one fruit. It's not nine fruits. It's one fruit with nine dimensions of beauty and significance. If you are in your workplace, controlled by the Holy Spirit, through the ups and downs of of work, 
the positives and the negatives, the hard things and the easy things. If you're filled by the Holy Spirit, then He will produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That makes a difference in any workplace. You cannot name a workplace where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will not have an impact. Also, share Christ in a Bible-based way. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Share Christ at your workplace in a Bible-based manner. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And, and, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus is everything he stands for, everything he prioritizes, everything on his agenda. And whatever you do, I may add at your workplace, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it in such a way that you could say, I think Jesus would have done it this way. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You get a hard assignment, you got an unreasonable boss, you got an unreasonable deadline, give thanks through Christ to God the Father. That'll make you stand out. Right living, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Beth, among her jobs uh, through college, was to clean swimming pools in Wisconsin. And one day she was cleaning a swimming pool and doing a diligent job of cleaning this swimming pool as unto the Lord. And the owner said, my, you're cleaning that pool in a very rigorous manner. Why? Because I'm preparing it as if my Lord Jesus would swim in it. You know, sometimes in Dallas, Texas, when I live there, I'll never forget a business executive who said, it's very sad, but the worst employees I have are born-again Christians. They're the tardiest, and they phone in the most sick when I doubt if they're sick. That is not how it ought to be. We are to live above the world's thinking at our workplaces, and we are to have a paradoxical life where we work. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's paradoxical to the world's thinking. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.11, Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. It's paradoxical. 1 Corinthians, still with how to witness at work. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. 
and I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. When you go to work tomorrow and each day you go to work, do everything for the sake of the gospel. Set aside your rights. Adapt without compromising your testimony. Live for the sake of the gospel living. Because right now at your workplace, it could be that the person who works beside you, that you are the only Bible they're reading. Live for the sake of the gospel. Another way to make this very practical is to invite that coworker to bring his or her spouse to your house for dinner. Just get to know them socially. Let them see you pray before you eat. Let them rub lives with you in your home. Don't want to do a meal? Do a coffee and a dessert. Have out-of-the-business-office-setting interaction with people. Now, if you're a single person, don't invite your boss of an opposite gender to your house. Inappropriate. Second, or this is the third question. Does God ever judge by abandoning? Does God ever judge by abandoning? Well, let me start by saying that for the believer, the genuine born-again person, the simple answer is no. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says and assures, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, watch this, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. God promises you as his daughter or son that he will never desert you, nor will he ever forsake you. Abandonment from God for the believer is never part of his judgment. Not even for a disciplined sinning believer. You know, the person, according to Matthew 18, that sins against you, you go to that person one-to-one and say how they've sinned against you, and they don't repent. And so you bring uh, two or three witnesses to go with you to confront the person with the sin that has offended you. And if they do not repent, it says take it to the church, which is a very painful thing. I've seen that happen in several of the churches I've had to pastor where we've had to say as pastors that so-and-so, John Doe, as involved in this sin, and he's been confronted a la Matthew 18, and he is not so far repented. So the scriptures say don't have social contact with him. Scriptures say treat him as a tax gatherer or a Gentile. Jewish people, red-blooded Jewish people, treated tax gatherers and Gentiles. They walked to the other side of the sidewalk. They didn't fellowship with them. They didn't socialize with them. They didn't interact with them. And God is so desirous of an unrepentant Christian coming back into fellowship with him that he wants the body of Christ when necessary in obeying Matthew 18 to withdraw fellowship and contact so that the person will not go on their merry way thinking everything is fine when they have sinned against someone and they refuse to acknowledge it and to repent. Serious stuff. But it's a purging and a purifying Obedience to God when local churches will take that stand for the sake of the testimony of the gospel. And yet, even in that state of discipline, even in that state of being ostracized, according to Matthew 18, 
15 to 18, the love of the Savior is ready and that person is never abandoned as a Christian by the Savior. Never. We know that because in Galatians 6.1, Galatians 6.1 says that the church of God is to stand at the ready to minister to a repentant brother or sister in Christ. Galatians 6.1, listen. Brethren, so believers, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is you who are healthy, walking with God in the Spirit, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The Greek word which is translated restore was a word outside of the Bible that was used for physicians to set a bone, a broken bone. Restore, the same Greek word outside of the scriptures, was used for fishermen. I drive by Montague Beach going to and from work every day, and there are those hardworking fishermen. They're on the pier, on the wharf, and they're selling the fresh fish they've caught. The same Greek word outside of the Bible that's translated restore here is to mend the nets. We who are spiritual, when someone has been disciplined by the church, repents. We are to stand at the ready to restore, to set the bone, to mend the net in tenderness and skill and attention. Such as one is to do it in a spirit of gentleness. You can't reset a bone roughshod. You can't mend a net in a hurry. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restoring that repentant believer with an attitude, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's beautiful. That's biblical. And so does God abandon as a form of his judgment, not for the believer? He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Even when we're disciplined, he wants us to be mended, restored. He's working in the life of the disciplined Christian 24-7. What about for the lost? Is God's abandonment a form of judgment for the lost? Yes, especially for the lost who are arrogant in their lostness, who've heard the gospel and have rejected the Christ of the gospel and the message of the gospel with an arrogance and a resistance that's calculated and proud. Go with me to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's like those flutterboards made of styrofoam some people's play in in their pools. The game when I was a boy in a pool with a styrofoam flutterboard was to try to hold it down, to suppress it. God says, for the lost person who in arrogant pride suppresses the truth, He will abandon them as a judgment. 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Can't look at a palm tree in all of its beauty and not see a creator. 
can't look at a squid with all of its physics that it could even swim and not see a creator. They are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, this is the arrogance, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Want to know what's at the heart and the root of idolatry? Suppression of the truth in arrogance. Verse 24, this is the abandonment as a judgment. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over. Second time it says, gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, second time, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. And men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Abandonment is a judgment. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer third time, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Wow, in that list, gossip. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Yeah, that's in the list. Part of being abandoned by God in suppressing the truth is God gives people over to, among other things, being disobedient to their parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, they've heard the gospel. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Abandonment as a judgment for lost, arrogant people who have heard the gospel and who, in a fist of pride and rejection, say, It's not true. It's not for me. Yes, abandonment is a form of God's wrath and judgment against sin. Ichabod, 1 Samuel 4.21. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Question. Any direction on studying the Word of God? Well, this morning, as we were in Luke 24, you heard me suggest that proper Bible study involves observation. What does the text say? It involves interpretation. What does the text mean? And that's done with a historical understanding, with a grammatical understanding, with um, a dictionary understanding of the meaning of the words, with a contextual understanding of what's been said before and after the verse you're trying to interpret with a spanning the scriptures understanding what else has God said about lust, for instance. But when you overarch everything else with interpretation, excuse me, 
Observation, interpretation, application. What does the truth mean to me? How does the truth change my life? Because if you just do observation and interpretation and fail to do application, you're a Pharisee. People educated in the Bible beyond their obedience to the Bible. So when you overarch, how do you study the Bible with observation, interpretation, and application? How else can you study God's Word? Well, there's several rubrics or ways you can look at it. How about this way? Trying to to study through parts of the Old Testament this year and parts of the New Testament next year if Christ doesn't return first. Or how about looking at the dispensations, the household arrangements that God has made through the history of mankind to evidence saving faith in him. From Genesis to Revelation, saving faith, God's grace through faith in God is how a person was saved if you were Enoch in Genesis or if you were the Apostle John on Patmos in Revelation and everything in between. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in God's provided work. So what are these dispensations? Well, the reason we didn't bring a lamb to worship this uh, resurrection Lord's Day is because we live in a different dispensation than the Old Testament law. So what are some discernible dispensations that you could study to understand them? Well, there's the dispensation of law prior to the cross. The law was given that we would understand as Jews, at least, that we need a Savior, that we cannot be righteous because we can't keep the law. If you're witnessing to someone and they say, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, just smile and lean in and say, how many of them do you keep? And what percentage of the time do you keep them? The honest person says, I haven't kept them all. And the ones I have kept, I haven't kept consistently. Because no one can. No one can. Only Jesus could. And so the first dispensation is the law. God said, if you seek to keep my commandments and do my prescribed animal sacrifices, I'll forgive you because you've demonstrated faith in me in the way I've asked you to demonstrate faith. Then we have the church age, the age in which we live after the cross, started in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost and runs all the way through to the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church can happen any time now. It's imminent any time now. There's no prophecy yet to be fulfilled that would have to take place before Christ returns for his bride. We better be ready, pure, about his agenda. This church age, what can we learn about the church age when the scriptures say, in this age, whosoever will may come, not just Jews, but Gentiles, whosoever will may come to Christ. What can we learn studying the scriptures about the church age? What about the next discernible dispensation, next household arrangement, the tribulation? Seven years of tribulation, Revelation chapters 4 through 19, a special time of intense judgment on the globe, but focused on the Jewish people, that they would come to see Yeshua, Messiah, Savior. What can we learn about God's character by studying those chapters of Revelation 4 through 19 that that talk about the dispensation of the tribulation? Or the millennium. After the seven years of tribulation, scriptures say in Revelation 20 that Jesus Christ will return to the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem to establish his righteous kingdom from David's literal throne on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Suppressing evil, 
Isaiah 11, with an iron scepter. You know, Jesus came the first Christmas as a lamb. He will come the second coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. What can we learn about God's character by studying the verses in God's word to do with that future kingdom, the millennial kingdom, thousand years with Satan bound and confined in a pit? What can we learn about God as we consider the new heaven and the new earth? Revelation chapters 21 and 22. What can we understand about God as we study those chapters? You get the point that you can study the scriptures by focusing in on these dispensations of law, church age, tribulation, millennium, new heaven, and new earth. All of them, or one of them, two of them, you could study God's word on these things. Or what about the covenants? The covenants of God, the Noahic covenant, God told them, among other things, that you could take a life for a life. Capital punishment is biblical. That the rainbow is the promise of God that he never will destroy the planet with a global flood ever again. That's a Noahic covenant. Unconditional. You could study it. There's the Abrahamic covenant that promised Abraham a descendant, a nation, and that the world be blessed through his descendant. What could you learn about God if you studied that unconditional covenant? What about the Mosaic Covenant? This is the only conditional covenant of all the covenants of Scripture. The Mosaic Covenant is the law. God said in Deuteronomy 28, If you obey me, Israel, I will bless you. If you disobey me in the respect to the law, Israel, I'll curse you. The only conditional covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Then there's the Palestinian Covenant. God defined the real estate that he was going to give to his chosen people, and they don't have all of it yet, so they better not be giving any of it away for peace. His promise of a piece of real estate, he, he lines it up as to what it is, and he says, you're going to have that. And they will. The Davidic covenant, the promise, unconditional promise of God that David would have a descendant on his throne and that Messiah would be a descendant of David's in his humanity, and he would rule the earth forever. Study that. The new covenant. Jeremiah 31, where God says to the Jew first and the Gentile by extension, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a fleshly heart instead of a heart of stone. You could study these covenants. Again, the only covenant of all these covenants that's conditional is the Mosaic Covenant, otherwise known as the law. The Noahic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant are un. Conditional. They are based on the character, integrity, and power of God. How else could we study God's Word? We could take one of the 66 books and purpose to study our way through that book verse by verse. How else could we study the Word of God? We could look at topics to see what the Old and the New Testament say about, for instance, baptism or How is Christ seen in the Old Testament? That'll be a long study. What does the Bible say at Old and New Testament about prayer, about fear, about grace, about the Holy Spirit, about work? I'm not talking about works with regard to salvation. I'm talking about rolling up your sleeve and digging a trench, work. Working on the computer where you work. What does the Bible say about your work? Well, we're to do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. And Adam and Eve had work to do in the garden before they fell into sin in chapter 3. So work is what we're made to do. It's good for us. 
And the theology of work that I find in the Bible is we work to meet our needs, to have remuneration to meet our needs, and whatever's excess to our needs, we're to give away to people in need. That kind of thing. Study topics. What about word studies? Looking at certain words that are key words in Scripture and trying to understand the meaning of repentance, for example, or love, or grace, or mercy, or hell. These are just some examples where we can focus in on words that are keywords to see what we can learn about these words, what they mean. Are there more, is there more than one kind of love in Scripture? Yes, there's several Hebrew words for love, and there's several Greek words for love in the New Testament. What are they? What's the nuance? What's the difference? How does it matter? We can look at doctrines, which is a fancy way of saying teachings, Bible teachings. We could study through in our quiet times, what does the Bible teach about justification? Being, being declared innocent when we're guilty. What does the Bible teach about sanctification? Being set apart for God's possession and use. What does the Bible teach about glorification? What does the Bible teach about redemption, for example? Or What a wonderful way to study the Bible is to look at the attributes of God. The names of God. We could go on. Wonderful topics that we can and ought to study. Those are four questions. I'll look forward to answering your questions in the future. If you have a question, then you could phone me. You could hop in to see me. You could... Email me at pastor.robelliot at gmail.com. I had a question this morning from a brother in Christ in this congregation. He said, how should we respond when open homosexuals want us to transact with them and their businesses? I'm going to learn by studying God's word about that before our next question and answer night.